This week on Intrigued Full Effect. Your children are your children. And, um, you know, as a black father, yes. And I, I do get that um, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes out there uh, when it comes to black males um, not loving our children. Um, I, I can't see it, um, I guess, because I do love mine. I'm Shandrea Thomas, and welcome to episode 45. In this podcast, I talk about curious cases, disappearances, and other stuff. And I know it's been a while since I put out an episode, but I'm back. Today, I'm talking about the disappearance of 24-year-old Daniel Robinson from Phoenix, Arizona. The geologist went missing from a well work site in the middle of the desert in Buckeye, Arizona on June 23rd of 2021. I had a candid conversation with his father, David, about the search for his son, the struggle he says he's having with the Buckeye Police Department investigation, and some new details in the case that I didn't know about. And I reached out to Buckeye Police about the case. This is what happened. My first question for you is, how are you doing right now? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm just still maintaining. I'm still stepping this gap for my family, but I'm doing okay. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, um, so let, let's get into your son's case. I know you've gotten some media coverage. A lot of families struggle to get that, but you've been able to get it. But I know there was kind of a, the, the Gabby Petito situation kind of helped boost it a little bit. So we'll get into that a little, a little bit later. But um, tell me about how you found out about your son's disappearance. This is June 23rd of last year. So how'd you find out he was missing? Well, you know, I did get a call from my daughter. Uh, she lives here in Phoenix um, and she, she got alerted. Uh, by a co-worker that came to her house and tell her, hey, look, he was looking for Daniel. Uh, that alerted her. She felt that it was strange uh, that, the, you know, that they came to her house uh, looking for him. He's supposed to be at work um, and she didn't hear from him. So she did alert me that, you know, the, the company was actually looking for Daniel uh, from that point. Yes. And then as far as what you knew about your son's disappearance, what did you discover about that? And how was that at this point? Well, you know, one of the things is uh, uh, just because, you know, the fact that, you know, we know my son, I know my son, um, you know, initially, you know, that whole six hours when I found out it was actually six hours that over six hours that he was uh, actually last seen, um, that was a prob- problematic for me. So, of course, uh, you know, uh, I, I know my son. Um, so to me, I know that something was wrong. He's he, the, the whole pattern of, of Daniel just been broken. So um, that was problematic for me, uh, even though to this day, because um uh, uh, with him just disappearing off the job, just based on one guy's story uh, at the well, the worker. Um, that is out of Daniel's character. And to this day, I still can't really understand the beginning of this whole uh, narrative. Actually, let's get into that really quickly, because you say the six hour window. So explain to me, what, what do you mean by that exactly, the six hour time period? Well, you know, Daniel, um, our family, we're a very tight-knit family. Um, my, my son, he, he often, we have our conversations, it's always a two-hour conversation, um, you know, between me and him. He tells me everything, you know, that he tells me as a father. Um, he has some advice. But, you know, some things that he don't tell me, he'll tell his siblings. Uh, so just like telling his siblings is like telling me because they would end up eventually telling him some things and vice versa. So we all eventually make sure make a smaller sense. We all know about each other, what's really happening. So with Daniel's pattern, um, Daniel, he's a very adventurous guy. He liked to travel. He liked to go places uh, to see his friends, his sibling that lives in California, for instance. He's come to Cal- he comes to South Carolina sometimes to visit us. Uh, but Daniel always would tell us where he's going. Um, it's been times where he would leave, uh, but it, w- within that travel, he will say, hey, this is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. So uh, that six-hour window was a little too long because, you know, he's not. sometimes he don't do it immediately. But he would do it at least within that six hour window 
uh, tell us where he's going. Oh, okay. I can, I can see that too, because I was just thinking like, especially in the areas that he would work in, I mean, they're pretty remote, you know, for the most part. Um, So let's get into like the timeline, because I think that's, that's something that's very interesting here from when Daniel was seen, I guess he was seen, uh, what are the the roads? Um, Sun Valley Parkway and Cactus Road. Yes. So let's get into where he was last on those roads. And then the last person who saw him and and into this guy who said he was law enforcement who saw him, but he seemed to be okay. There's so many things that we need to get into. So can you kind of run me through that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, Dane, he's, of course, he's a field geologist. So he was going out to the well site that morning. He went to two. He went to one um, roughly around seven o'clock that morning. That was off a of, uh, Verado Way uh, area. Um, he had to do some pictures over there. And then once he left that well site, he met, uh, he called a, a guy, uh, from uh, that was already at the well site uh, from a company called Weber, a uh, different company. Uh, but he called a guy to meet him out there so he can do his job. Um, they both met out on uh, Southern Valley Parkway, uh, Cactus Road area. Um, that's where uh, the entrance gate is to that well site. Uh, they met out there, had a little brief discussion. Um, my son followed him in to that desert out there. It's a mile um, uh, west and then two miles north to get to that well site. They had a brief conversation about the weather. Um, you know, my son was supposedly saying he's a little tired and things like that. Um, wanted to go ahead and get some rest. Uh, after a little brief conversation, like I said, within 10 minutes, the, the story is my son waved off and got in his vehicle and drove off where he was never seen. However, at hindsight now, we also had a, uh, end up being the second guy uh, that did say that he uh, also um, seen Daniel that morning. Um, and uh, he, he first alerted himself as being a federal law enforcement agent. That's since has been debunked. Uh, he's not a federal law enforcement agent, uh, but he was uh, cleared by the Buckeye Police Department, what I was told, um, and his story did was corroborated, but he did say uh, he saw Daniel out there twice out there where he was out there target practice with his, his children. Um, um, roughly, uh, at first he said one in the morning, but he said roughly around 10 o'clock that morning. Um, and um, um, like I said, Daniel, the first time he saw him through his, his scopes of his rifle, Second time you saw him near a, uh, what they call this uh, wagon of wash. It was like um, dumped off into the river um, on the banks, uh, working on his car, doing something, cleaning his car out of the other. He talked to Daniel, very, he said Daniel was very mild-mannered, um, gave him directly, had a discussion about where it was proper for him to target practice at. Daniel told him, hey, you shouldn't do it in that area. That's where they're working. Um, he did point him out to BLM lands, Bureau of Land Management. So that, that's pretty much um, the sum of, of that kind of, um, of people who actually saw my son that morning. What he said to you and the description of Daniel, you feel pretty confident that this, there was a second person who saw Daniel after he left the well that particular day. Yes, well, I was, at least that's what I was told. Um, I did talk to the gentleman um, at one point. Um, I have since to make sure, like I said, verify that with the Buckeye Police Department, uh, which in turn told me, yeah, they verified his story. Um, he said he did see Daniel that morning. Uh, but what, what it does for me as a parent is it, it debunks um, to me uh, that theory that Daniel was somehow, um, you know, has some kind of um, uh, uh, issues with uh, his, his emotions and things like that. Um, the co-worker saying he was acting odd and strange and things like that. Um, that was kind of different from what that one person, that last person that seen Daniel uh, thought of Daniel. Uh, he's, he didn't see the same uh, characteristics uh, that the co-workers would say. Okay, so let, let's get into when the Jeep was found. I know he was very proud of this Jeep. He, it was a kind of, it was a new Jeep for him, right? So as far as um, where his Jeep was found in proximity to where the well was, how far was that and how long did it take for them to actually find the Jeep? 
Well, you know, of course, yeah. Um, you know, the well site and the, uh, the proximity uh, where the vehicles are recovered, that's all about three miles uh, from the wells. It's, um, it's, it's, it's southwest of where the uh, well site was where Daniel was last seen. Only about three miles. Um, they did do, um, according to Buckeye, uh, they did two um, extensive searches of that area and did not see the vehicle. And of, of course, we ought to know uh, the rancher who actually found the vehicle on the, um, June, uh, July the 19th. Um, said that he was there two days prior, two to three days prior uh, to July the 19th, and the vehicle wasn't there. Um, you know, of course, he was out there uh, um, chasing down his cattle. And um, he, so he was in that area because uh, his cattle always traveled down that same ravine uh, that the vehicle was found in. Um, they didn't come through there the first time, so he went back there again. That's when he, he located the vehicle. And see, so, so that's what I find kind of strange because you would think that it would have been seen way before right. this, for this day. So more weeks have gone by the the jeep wasn't there and then all of a sudden the jeep appears in this space that's right Wait, what goes through your mind with that you know it's 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 really troubling for me um you know as as, as everybody know i started my own searches uh right after my son went missing it only been like a little over almost two weeks later uh, that my son went missing that i started my searches we my searches covered the well area um, and that's where we stepped in we stepped in that area where the well site was and trying to locate dane's vehicle to rescue him um, um, to say that it was just that close and, uh, and it, in these two searches from professionals, um, and they did not find this vehicle. Uh, yeah, it is troublesome to me, um, uh, meaning, and, and more reasons why is because, uh, once that vehicle did show up, I expanded my searches to cover that area, um, to look for Daniel also. And that's when we discovered, um, the first, uh, human skull, um, that was near that area. And, um, we're trying to, in my mind, I wonder why. Um, that department with all the cadaver dolls to search dolls that they say that they have, have not uh, located these items that we found. Um, they come up empty and we come up with things um, as civilians. So yeah, it's, it's always bothersome to me to this day uh, to be able to uh, say that why those things weren't caught earlier. Wow. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to get into your searches. Um, as far as his Jeep goes, what did you guys find inside of the Jeep? I understand there was like a black box or something inside of there and some other possessions in there along with the Jeep. Well, um, you know, um, everything Daniel wearing his clothes, we already know that was outside the vehicle. Everything from his underwear, socks, everything was on the ground. Um, but what was found in the vehicle was his cell phone, his work computer, um, and one of his, his backpack. Uh, his backpack, like I said, contained his work computer. Um, his, of course, his keys to the vehicle itself, um, you know, things like that. But other than that, everything was outside the vehicle. Um, his personal effects with his wallet, uh, for instance, um, was outside, inside the pants pocket um, uh, of his clothing that's on the ground in the pile. So what does that say to you? I mean, when you guys were going out there with, with your own investigators and things like that, I mean, compared to what Buckeye Police, and we'll get into that relationship in a little bit, but right. um, um, compared to what, they, what they're saying and what you guys found out there, what comes to your mind as far as the theories about what may have went down out there? You know, a lot of people say I'm biased because I'm a father. I'm supposed to be biased. And the reason why, um, because I know my son, you know, uh, but at the same time, I do have a brain. Uh, I do, um, you know, I, I can just look at it. Anybody can look at that scene. And then you look at it and say, hey, this, this uh, young man uh, who's a scientist uh, disappeared 30 days later. Vehicle wasn't there 30 days later. Uh, almost 30 days later, it shows up. Uh, and not to show up in any kind of way. It showed up um, red, uh, showed up with red transfer paint on the side, which is nothing red in, in the desert. Uh, everything on his body was on the ground. Um, you know, the sunroof was kicked out. Um, there's no glass in the sunroof, but he was able to kick out of a panel um, and he was, he's gone. 
Uh, anybody can look at that scene and, and, and this, this infer that, hey, look, something suspicious is going on. Um, and from my point of view, yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, some, some type of criminal activity happened, you know, um, just by looking at the scene. When I reached out to the Buckeye Police Department about the case, I was referred to their media page, which has a breakdown of exactly what they did with the case. David says his last communication with the department was within one week of this podcast. This is in the middle of the desert. I mean, literally, anything could happen out there. There's people traveling through the desert, all types of things. So he could have encountered something. Anything could have happened out there. And that's true. You know, there's, um, you know, uh, wild animals out there. People don't know there's mountain lion out there that lives a very aggressive game of fish have them tagged, but he's, he's very aggressive out there. You have uh, rattlesnakes. You have I me. Mean, you have it all. You also have the cartels out there. You have uh, human trafficking out there. And, and, and just the fact that, um, you know, like I said, my searches alone have brought um, found human remains. And uh, so, you know, that's all, obviously a crime scene. Um, it's a place where people are obviously out of dumping people there or crimes are happening there. So, yes, there's all kinds of things happening out there in that desert. Do you feel deep down that Daniel is out there somewhere alive? Do you feel like you just don't know? Do you feel like there, there was really some foul play involved in all of this? You know, I feel all kinds of ways. Uh, some days uh, I feel optimistic in other ways because of uh, things I do know. Um, you know, evidential-wise, um, it, it tugs at your faith. It tells at your mind. It tells at your heart. Um, you know, my love and my heart want to say, I know my son is alive, and I really have faith. I have faith in God. First of all, I'm a man of faith, and, and despite of everything I see and things I know about this case that would suggest otherwise, I still try to find that glimmer of hope that my son is out there somewhere alive, um, and that all of this is a big waste of time. He's there, and that's, and that's what I hope for every day. What is that like for you? I mean, when you go out there and, and have your searches and you come across these human skulls and remains and things like that, I'm wondering, of course, you're wondering, is, is it your son first? But secondly, just right. as a person encountering that, I imagine those who are out there searching with you, it has to be kind of kind of wild to come across that, you know? It, it, it does. I have my daughters out there uh, at one instance, uh, for instance, uh, they used to come out to the search at the beginnings. And uh, well, one of them did. And uh, I stopped it immediately when I thought about it. First of all, I don't want them to find a brother in that state. Uh, once we started finding those human remains, um, I didn't want them to run into their brothers. They have that last memory. But for the volunteers, it's very hard. It's definitely hard for me, too, because um, every time we find remains out there, it's always in the back of my mind. Hey, what is this? My son, um, you know, and it, and so it's very hurtful, especially when we find uh, the fresher uh, remains uh, uh, lastly this year. Um, is, is very uh, scary each time. But only good part that comes out of that is the, the fact that I know later on, once I realize it's not my son, is that we somehow brought some closure to another family uh, who, who, who don't know their loved ones probably for years um, and, and get some, some type of sense of closure to know they found something of their, um, their, their, their loved one. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, let's get to your, your searches really quickly. Um... How many searches have you had? I mean, I imagine there's hundreds that you guys have done at this point. How many square miles have you uh, searched and where have you ex- extended it out to? Well, as, as the date, we did at least about 30,000 uh, square, uh, I'm sorry, acres of um, land out there uh, that we covered. And that was by um, mostly line searches. Um, and then we utilized uh, UTV, ATVs. Um, as in the square mileage, um, I can... Um, estimate about 11 square mileage uh, or so um, out there. But 
um, yeah, we, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, we still have a lot of ground to cover. That's why I'm still trying to get the searches going um, a lot better now. I had to cut it down to once every two weeks now, but uh, definitely uh, we, we covered a lot of ground since we've been out there uh, with, the, with the volunteers. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess my other question is, as far as you guys extending, have you, are you, you going into the city? You're going to other areas and passing out flyers. Where are you doing that? Is it just pretty much the Phoenix metro area where you're doing that or? Well, yeah, I, I do that. And, you know, I started my first, it was the, uh, the flyer, I call it flyer, uh, the flyer, uh, the city searches. Uh, we was going out to passing the flyers to the hospitals, to the mental health wards, especially uh, focusing on the homeless, pop homeless populations, because I don't know what happened to my son. Uh, the focus was to the homeless population and the hospitals, because what if Daniel got out of that desert? Um, he don't know who he is, or he is somehow became part of the homeless population, things like that. So it was geared towards that. Then later transferring over to uh, flyer distribution. I changed that over to that point because I have people come grab these flyers. They take them to their cities where they're here in Arizona, uh, trying to cover every city here in Arizona and also abroad all over um, this country. Uh, so people do grab those flyers. So that's what I have now is the, uh, the flyer distribution to bring awareness and things like that. When is the last time you actually talked to Daniel? And what was that conversation, if you can share that? Yeah, uh, it was two days, uh, two, two or so days. I believe it was two days before uh, Daniel went missing. Um, and our conversation was just the same. Uh, Daniel owned the thing. He had a little more details uh, or some questions asked. Um, as you know, um, he did mention the young lady uh, that he met um, um, uh, doing Instacart. Uh, so we did have a little small conversation about that. Um, but, you know, most of this conversation was about the future events. Uh, you know, people don't know, but we had plans that um, I was supposed to be here in Arizona and Phoenix to visit him and his sister in, um, um, in July last year. And um, so we had plans there. Instead of seeing this vehicle for the first time, for him showing me in July, I seen it the way it was uh, wrecked uh, with him missing. So, but yeah, our last conversation is basically that, uh, talking about, you know, future events, um, his entrepreneurship, um, his travel plans and things like that. His sister, he and his sister had plans to go hiking that weekend, you know, things like that. Just the same old two-hour conversation that me and Daniel have. So as far as um, when you stop and look at his state of mind, I mean, he was pretty much normal. There was nothing out of the ordinary that he was talking about that would alarm you in any way as far as his state of mind two days before he disappeared. We just right. want to establish that, right? That's right. Yeah, it was nothing out of the ordinary. Um, you know, Danny, he's a very inquisitive guy. Uh, you know, he looks up to me as a father. He always going to ask me questions. He always asks me my guidance uh, to everything, you know, from, hey, should he... Um, you know, looking to this cryptocurrency, for instance, or whatever you need to do this, or uh, how do you, how I go about fixing this, uh, building this computer that he just built. Uh, he was building a, a few days, he finished building it a few days before he went missing, um, uh, a computer, um, how to go about doing. So he's always been inquisitive about everything, always asking questions. So um, for instance, he asking questions about love and things like that. You know, he just had questions. So that's just Daniel. Yeah, he's a young guy, just wanted to ask, wanted to ask his dad about life, it sounds like. That's right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's well, I'm glad you were able to have that good conversation with him, you know, as yes. far as that, that last conversation. Uh, let's move into the Buckeye Police Department. This, that's been, it sounds like, from what I'm gathering, it's been a very tense um, or not so good relationship. Um, so I want you to kind of explain to me what's, what's happened with the department and why, where do things kind of go astray between the two of you? Well, you know, um, when I first got here, uh, it's only because I left the way I did is because, you know, I first got alerted that they weren't going to go search my son. Um, 
because they felt like he's a grown man and he can disappear. Just the fact that they thought um, that the, that Daniel wanted to disappear and they weren't going to look for him, that just got me to leave and get, get here to Phoenix. Um, but, you know, of course, um, I don't know anybody here in Phoenix other than my daughter who is living here, um, and I need to find my son. So I had started my own investigation, but I had to work with the Buckeye Police Department. I try to work with them every, everywhere I can. Uh, giving information about myself, about my son's uh, call records to his bank statements, um, you know, and, and also uh, trying to get them to get things like the cell phone pings to uh, Uconnect and things. So everything worked out pretty well until the vehicle showed up. When the vehicle showed up um, and they gave me those theories that they had and um, I didn't agree with those theories, um, I hired my own investigator uh, who, in fact, found um, a lot of more evidence, physical evidence, um, that would suggest uh, foul play uh, once we turned those things over. We were reluctant to do so at the beginning because of some other things with Buckeye, but we ultimately did. And once we did that, that's when they shut down. Um, to this day, um, don't really call me or, or communicate with me as a father. And that's when our relationship uh, started falling apart. Wow. As far as the theories that you did get from Buckeye police, what was that? Well, you know, uh, the, first of all, um, the, the department called me, the, the vehicle was found on the 19th of July. Um, they didn't call me to the 20th. Um, I've been here on the ground since June the 26th, uh, searching for my son, they know this. Um, they called me over 24 hours later uh, to let me know the vehicle was found by a rancher. Um, of course, I asked them why they didn't call me. They said, hey, we didn't they want to disturb your sleep, which I thought was ridiculous. Uh, but they did call me to the um, department. And, and what their theories were, they, 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 gave, they only had three items. The detective, he had two pictures and, I mean, two uh, maps and one picture. Uh, he showed me where my son's vehicle was um, in relation to the map and Sun Valley Parkway. And then he started going through the theories of what he thought happened to my son uh, on the scene. When he showed me the vehicle on, on the picture. Uh, he showed me the clothing that was on the ground. He said, hey, this is your son's clothing. Everything on his body is on this ground in a pile. Uh, he asked me what type of underwear my son wear. He wear boxes of briefs. I wouldn't know that. He's a grown man. Uh, he said, well, it was on the ground too. You know, that was very devastating here. But he said, the good part is, Mr. Robinson, um, that we feel that your son didn't sustain any injuries. Even though he told me at the time the car flipped and the roll and, and everything like that, uh, he said he didn't, suspect, uh, he didn't um, suffer any injuries because he, um, there was no blood in the vehicle. And he had his, uh, the way the seatbelt was locked, he had the seatbelt on. Um, and so uh, he didn't sustain an injury, but they say at the same time, they feel like he had a severe head injury, a brain injury. Um, and then he kicked his way out the sunroof to escape and head injury. He went through a detail to tell me that head injuries causes you to shred your clothes off because you think you're hot and you, he shred his clothes off. He must've walked off from the scene um, to go up under a tree to hide, uh, to cool off. And he probably succumbed to his injuries or got you know, taken by some wildlife animal. Um, they later told me that maybe he wanted to be away from his family and join a monastery and become a monk. Um, after hearing that kind of rhetoric and things like that, of course, uh, I'm not going to look at that and say, hey, that's, mm, I agree with you. Um, I, I decided to get my own investigator uh, because they, after they told me that story, they turned the vehicle over to me and gave me everything that belongs to my son and expected me to go home. And I, I couldn't go with that. You got the vehicle. What did you guys find? Like, what do you? What was left behind? I guess inside of it. Well, you know, um, to this day, I only seen that vehicle twice. I seen it one time um, by Detective Biffin, who showed it to me um, at the police compound, and then the second time is when my uh, former private investigator uh, showed it to me um, at the locations where it's, it's stored now. 
Um, but I have never looked inside the vehicle. I do have pictures um, of items um, that was there. I did see it briefly when Detective Viffen opened the door, the back door of the vehicle. I seen things like baggies with um, um, look like dirt or rocks or things in it. I later found out there was the samples from the well uh, from his job. That's what they do. They put in these little Ziploc type bags um, to turn in. Uh, also, um, um, you know, just 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 a uh, NYPD bag or something like that. Other than that, I have other everything else is based on pictures I've seen, the hard hats, the uh, where his wallet was at, his school ID, you know, a big box of um, invoices and things like that. Just just regular items in this vehicle. Okay, and then I, I think I think I heard you say that he had his computer and stuff in there. Was there water and things just for being out in the desert and stuff like that? Well, you know, um, you know, in Arizona, it doesn't rain that, that much, especially that time of the year. Uh, but it did rain, um, um, supposedly rained that day Daniel went missing. Uh, one thing the, uh, the Buckeye Police Department pointed out to me uh, in that vehicle was a hard hat. And it was filled with water. They said, hey, we found a hard hat filled with water, but nothing else was wet. Uh, just the hard hat uh, filled with water. Um, everything else seemed to be okay. Mm, now, he, had a, he wore like a vest. I imagine they wear like a safety vest or something out there, too. I yes, think I saw did. that in the picture as well. That's right. It's um, another foot away from the pile of clothing. Um, you know, there's a pile of clothing. His pants um, turned inside out um, um, in that pile. But the the, the, um, the safety vest he was wearing was another foot away um, north of that um, uh, pile of clothing. And then you have one one of his boots is um, south uh, southeast, um, probably another two feet away from that pile of clothing. And then the other boot was tucked under the front end of the vehicle, uh, along with the panel uh, from the sunroof. So. So what do you know about the searches that Buckeye did conduct? Like, did they go, they actually went out there and did some search at some point. What do you know about what they did out there? Well, you know, what bothered me, like I said, um, when they told me they weren't going to go search for my son, that was a problem. I was on the road. Uh, once I made it here to Phoenix, I just got into uh, the outs outskirts of Phoenix when I got a phone call from my auntie in Philly. Uh, she said, hey, David, uh, Phoenix, uh, 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 Buckeye Police Department said they're going to get this Firebird, uh, this Firebird helicopter in the air. Um, and I was really relieved to hear that. Um, they did say they was going out that uh, that was almost three days later, almost three days after my son went missing. Think about that. Almost three days later, um, they decided to uh, put his firebird in the air. I was a little relieved of that. And then they waited another week and a half uh, to do a second search with um, uh, uh, some uh, place, an uh, uh, entity called um, the Silver Air Patrol. Uh, they did a search with the Silver Air Patrol uh, that went out there, like I said, uh, another week and a half after that that first initial search, and uh, um, but it, they, but it, both of those searches they came up empty-handed. So at this point, I mean, as far as your your relationship with them, there's no update on any type of investigation or tips or anything coming from Buckeye that you're aware of at this point. No, uh, what I was last told by the Buckeye Police Department when they gave me everything of my son, uh, they told me they didn't have a case. Um, you know, they 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 um, they have no more leads to follow. Excuse me, they didn't have no more leads to follow. Uh, once I got my private investigator, they told him they're not investigating. That's what they the one that turned that black uh, box data over to my investigator, uh, who in turn read the data uh, that they gave to them uh, to him uh, that determined 11 additional miles on the vehicle, things like that that we know now um, uh, that came from that black box data. Uh, but yeah, um, they turned everything over to me saying, hey, they didn't have an investigation. They put it on their Facebook page. There's more leads to follow, no more leads to follow and things like that. So um, the best they gave me, everything they gave me in evidence bag was safe, uh, marked for safekeeping. I found out later that meant that they felt that Daniel was going, from that scene, he's going to show up one day and come back and grab his thing. So they just turned it over to the family. Okay. And just, just to clarify, when you say the black box, this is the, the black box that was inside of his Jeep? 
Well, it's 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 really we call it a black box, but it's, I think it's called an ECM. It's um it's a computer, the the, the vehicle's computer. Um, what it does is stores um, data, uh, especially when the vehicle crash. Um, it's, it's it's quick microsecond type deal. Um, you have times uh, not timestamp, but um, events uh, stamps um, in a vehicle. So that's how they know um, the additional miles or um, the vehicle is cranked um, over four to six times after the first crash and things like that. when the airbags are deployed and things like that. All the information comes from that black data, uh, that box. Uh, we call it the black box, right? Okay, so was there one crash or was there two crashes? Um, according to my private investigator, uh, he's an accident reconstructionist, it was multiple crashes. It was the first crash that caused the airbags to deploy. Uh, the vehicle's driven, then driven 11 additional miles where it ended up in that ravine, which could have been more crashes um, between that point, but that, that, that ravine is the second crash. What day, at what point was your last conversation with Buckeye? Was that in 2021? Like, when was that last communication with them? Well, I just recently um, had a text message from um, a detective Biffin uh, from the Buckeye Police Department, uh, but he, he added one of my guys from the uh, searches, which I thought was very improper. Um, you know, so it is a text message um, asking me uh, for my son's uh, personal things. Um, it wasn't um, doing a warrant. It wasn't through a letter to my attorney. It was a text message, you know, hey, you know, we, we can do the forensic work for you if you want me to us to um, turn over, you know, um, his computer. That's not how you do protocol. And not when you send me a test message with um, one of the guys from my searches um, um, name, um, both for sending this information to both of us. So um, at this point, that's the last time I heard from them, um, which is a few days ago now. Oh, wow. No, I know. Yes. I remember, um, I recall that you were saying that you um, were in the process of trying to process the evidence and fingerprints and things yourself. Where are you with that right now? Well, um, the good thing is, um, you know, like I said, I had to cut down my searches uh, because of that, because uh, of funding. I try to utilize the funding the proper way. Um, you know, everybody knows that I'm using uh, partial of my own money and also to go fund me to uh, fund everything that I'm doing here, uh, remaining here in Arizona, for instance. And uh, one of the things is to cut down some of the uh, dispensers that I have, like for my searches tomorrow, uh, dispensers that we're using out there. Uh, just so I can have enough funding uh, to start working on the forensic work. I have to get the um, uh, the cell phone is already being processed. Um, I have to get the uh, other cell phone um, that we found near the scene processed. I have to get everything um, on the ground, his clothing, his boots, um, his safety vest, um, also the red transfer paint uh, that's on the vehicle, the vehicle airbags and everything. All that stuff needs to be processed um, to um, uh, forensically because it wasn't done by the Buckeye Police Department on the scene. Um, they did do fingerprinting under my request a few days after um, they gave me the vehicle. I did um, uh, require requested that they did the fingerprinting. Um, I haven't gotten anything back from them. They didn't, don't like I say, don't tell me anything. So I did also get that done. As far as you searching wells for your son and throughout this whole process, what have you discovered at this point? Well, a couple of things. Um, like I said before, the many um, Buckeye Police Department had admitted they didn't do a search of the well initially, um, as I thought. It's also going in correlation with what the um, the worker said, who was there last seen my son um, at that well. Um, but I did um, have them to come in to, uh, of one of my searches to uh, the Buckeye Police Department, that is, to come in to search the wells and also bring in cadaver dogs. Um, they did come, but it came kind of empty-handed. Um, they had put some cameras down in that well, uh, both wells. There's one that's where my son was last seen and one was north of that. Um, they went to the one that's north of that and put a camera down and they went to the surface of the water and they pulled back up and said, hey, your son's not there. 
of course, in my mind, I just let it hit it slide, but my mind was there. No, that's that's unacceptable to me. Also, they had a cadaver dog there. Um, like I said, like a family pet to me. It was really fluffy, little cute white dog, but they said it was a cadaver dog that didn't alert on anything. Um, so after that little search they did, of course, I hired my own, uh, got my own um, um, company to go search those wells. Um, we was able to search the well where Daniel was last seen. I cleared that well. Um, it was nothing there. It was straight shot down. Um, that well went down at least uh, 800 some feet from the, from the surface down through the water to the bottom. Um, but the other well, um, it was a little different. Uh, we went there, we found a lot of obstruction in that well. Um, when we got down to the water level, it's like 500 feet before you get to that water level. level and that's where the obstruction began. Um, the way to explain that is to work my way backwards uh, from the bottom up. From the bottom of that well, um, there was a, a fence pole um, down in the dirt, down in the dirt part of the well. Um, on that fence pole, um, there was a pile of a mound of dirt sitting on top of, of that fence pole, indicated somebody was dump, dumping a large amount of dirt down in that well. Um, above that, another level up there was a, a wood obstruction, like they tried to throw something wood, but it kind of got enlarged on the size of the well. And on top of that was another pipe, a really big pipe that it tried to get to go down there. I guess not that wood down, but it didn't didn't take it. It's kind of stuck there. So we was able to get around that obstruction uh, with the cameras to get all the way down that well. Like I said, from the surface of the well down to the bottom is almost a thousand feet. It's like 890 something feet um, down from that surface of the water down to the bottom of that, to the settlement down the bottom. Once we got to the settlement of the bottom and looked around in that settlement, that appeared to be uh, some little round little disc area. We kind of looked at it, couldn't really tell it was. We tried to use the camera to kind of knock some of the dirt around on the bottom. And lo and behold, it looks like to us, the top of a, a human skull, but we're not sure what it is exactly. Uh, so my plans now is to take that, because it was we record those film as the camera go down, um, to take that footage uh, to a pathologist or someone who's uh, familiar with identifying human skulls. And, and see if that is indeed a human down in that well. That is quite the discovery. If there is someone down there, who is this person, you know? Right, and you know, the scary part was, like I said, um, the well, the guy, he's, that's what he does. He inspects wells. And the way we was able to get down in those wells, um, those wells are private wells. Mm -hmm. And um, the only way we was able to get in that well, I had to make a deal with the owners. Um, they first didn't want me there. They didn't secondly say, hey, they want to make sure everybody have insurance, which is fine, we did that. And thirdly, to, to a, as an incentive for them, is the company that I used um, was inspecting the well. So they got a free inspection of their well. They liked that. So they allowed me to go in their wells uh, to search those wells um, because it, got, it came with a free inspection. Uh, so uh, being ever there, this guy, he was able to, uh, like I say, he's, he, that's what he does for a living, this company. And they said those wells do not supposed to have obstructions in it, like that tele, um, the fence poles and and those type of things that was there, um, yes, they shouldn't have been there. And like I said, with the mound of, mound of dirt sitting on top of that pole, that when it comes to that little junction there, indicates all the dirt that is thrown down in there um, to cover, to me, in my opinion, to cover something up. Wow. So let me just make sure I get a proximity of, of, of these locations. So how far is this well from the original well uh, Daniel was working at versus where his Jeep was found? Like how far is it from those two things? It's probably less than a quarter of a mile, um, just like less than one quarter of a mile away. It's uh, from where Daniel's vehicle, uh, where his, I'm sorry, where his, uh, he last seen the well site he was last seen at. It's north, uh, like a quarter of a mile, if that, north of that well. 
Um, James Jeep was found uh, three miles southwest um, from that well site where Daniel was last seen. Okay, wow. So there's definitely something to think about with that. So, yes. um, so again, you're going to be uh, searching that, I guess, getting a, a deeper look into that whole thing coming up in That's the coming right. months here. That's well, right. And, and, you know, just I was just thinking, too, you're getting really close to that one year mark of all of this. Yes, very much so. We just had a candlelit visual, um, you know, I'll do things like that. Um, I have a uh, fast and a prayer coming up this uh, coming Wednesday. Um, and um, coming up to that year mark, I I'm praying and asking God, please allow me to find my son before then. Uh, if not, I'm sure we'll be doing something um, in honor of that also. Like I said, I do have the foundation that I'm working on uh, in the honor of my son's name. And uh, so hopefully we'll be getting that up also pretty soon. Mm -hmm. what, would the, what would the foundation do or what, what will it be? Is it to help missing persons families or is it? And that's it. You know, everything I've been through, um, my family been through, uh, what I've been through, just trying to start searches to um, trying to get equipment that I needed uh, to try to get investigative stuff done. All that stuff, hopefully the foundation, that's what I'm working on to provide for families uh, to give them guidance to what to do, uh, especially families of color, um, black families. I want to make sure we can uh, try to try to close that 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 uh, that gap um, that happened with um, uh, often, um, you know, with um, black families and people of color when it comes to uh, getting their their stories out there, for instance, without getting without uh, when it comes to having the ink, the money to search or the money to provide a place to stay while they're searching for their loved ones, things like that. So we want to try to provide a lot of things like that. Let's move into some other parts of what was going on with Daniel leading up to his disappearance. Um, so he had some people who he was, you know, I know he's, he's big and online. He does a lot of online stuff and things like that. You said he built his own computer and that type of thing. So he yeah. actually has some people who were coming to visit him, like during that time frame when he disappeared or tell me about that. Well, he did have a, um, a friend of his that came from New York. Um, I think, uh, what Daniel told me that he was, uh, actually thinking about moving, uh, to Phoenix. So he wanted to stay with Daniel for a few days to, um, you know, kind of scope the area and find out where he wants to, uh, you know, eventually move to. So um, he did come out and do that. Uh, he, I think he left for um, at least a few days, I would say about four days or so uh, before Daniel went missing. Oh, so you guys were able to confirm that this person was out long gone, wouldn't have any part in anything. Okay. Well, that's what I was told by my um, investigator. So, yes. Okay, got you there. Let's get into this text message situation. This young woman that Daniel met. I know there's been there's information all over the internet about him stalking her and him having some sort of obsession with her, um, and these text messages that were you know put out publicly. Tell me what is your perspective on that, and what do you know about that at this point? Well, you know, um, some parts of me would say that's a distraction. You know, from the fact that the Buckeye Police Department hasn't. Uh, taking my son's case seriously at the beginning, um, you know, because, you know, one of the biggest things is for me as a father is to watch this department put uh, a young lady's text message in their system. Not only did they uh, not put this messages on, the, uh, on their report themselves, they allowed this lady to upload her own text messages uh, to, into that report uh, through a system that they have, um, which could have easily been adopted. You know, it could have been changed or anything, but it's the whole bottom line is a hearsay um, uh, testimony in a sense. Um, it's one-sided. Um, it come from uh, one lady's, like I said, her own uploading. It wasn't like a, um, from a, a warrant um, that the officer went in her phone themselves and uploaded that to the um, uh, to the uh, uh, police report. But she was doing it herself. 
Also, they had my son's cell phone from the scene. Um, uh, Detective Biffin had it from the scene. He had it for a few days. Um, the, uh, the, when I received a phone from them, um, that phone was wiped of his memory card, was taken out of there. Um, everything about this young lady was wiped out of the phone um, when it comes to text messages. Um, you know, um, um, the Google history was uh, wiped out of the phone, uh, things like that. So it, it, to me, that's, that, that signifies some type of hit, hiding something, foul play type deal. Um, the trash can and his phone was empty. So, you know, that type deal. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's one-sided. Um, when I look at my son's phone records, her text message don't match. match. We can't, of course, see the messages, but it don't match the um, timestamps. Wow. So I was going to, so as far as what your son's side of it was, can right. you speak anything to what you know of that? Or is that something that you holding on to confidentially? Well, some things I have to hold on confidentially. That's um, some things I did get once I uh, speak with the representatives of, at Google, uh, who was able to help me get some of that data back to uh, Daniel's phone. Uh, so I can have some understanding to where Daniel was located uh, days before he went missing. Um, and um, but some of those things I definitely have to keep. But um, um, as in his phone, yeah, I can say yeah, those things do not match. A lot of things do not match um, what is on that report um, as in timestamps. Wow. So that so that can can totally change the whole entire narrative of of what's right. out publicly. So and, that, and that's what I wanted to ask you. You know, just to make sure you clarified that because you, you just have the one side of everything that went down. That's so right. so as far as his in, um, encounter with this young woman, how, what do you know about that relationship or was it a relationship or you know, there's all these theories about what went on with that. What do you know about that? Well, you know, again, like I said, my son, and I, we talked for two hours. Daniel tell me everything. He talks about everything. Um, and he tells me, well, he tells me from a son to father perspective on things. And uh, one thing he did when it comes to, I'm sure young ladies, he's going to speak about it. He talked about him when he's in college. He's talking about this young lady here. Uh, he started telling me the story about this young lady um, in our conversation. Um, one of the things that stuck out to me when he was telling me when he got to the point and said he spent the night with a young lady, it was two. He told me about the Instacart thing. He met, I could ask him how he met her. Uh, it was the Instacart thing. He said, here's the strangest way. I met them through them. It was just two ladies uh, through the Instacart situation. Um, something went wrong with the order when he was ordering some wine. Um, he went to fix that order for them. They thought it was really nice. They invited him into the house. Uh, he ended up, you know, spending the night there with uh, one of the young ladies. Uh, and uh, 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 the next day he was gone, but he did kind of mention the story about how he had to go get his canopy and things like that. Uh, the only concern I had at that point when I stopped him and started asking the details was the fact that he spent the night over a woman's house he didn't know. Um, you know, I told him, hey, son, you can't do that. You're too smart to be, you know, spending spend the night. How you know this is her house and, you know, things like that. He said, oh, dad, I, it's got to be her house because the house is really nice. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing you can say. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you know, you can't just judge off a house like that. But the whole point is, um, my son um, decided to do that, uh, spend a night over the latest house uh, mm -hmm. and spend time over that way, uh, which I thought wasn't wise. However, he did mention about going back to get his canopy. Uh, so when I read in the report and it said, hey, she says, don't come up here uninvited. He did tell me about that uh, prior to this report. Uh, he said, hey, he went over there to get his, he, he tried to get in contact with her. She didn't answer text messages. Uh, so he took it upon he needed for his job the canopy is something he used out there in the desert yeah for like the shade and the cover right. yeah because it's hot right. yeah so he knew he left it he left it in the backyard i started asking the question hey what you doing hmm how did a canopy get in the backyard that was kind of strange to me but he went back there to get it himself uh he remembered where she stayed when to get his retrieve his canopy that's where the test message came and say hey you know she saw him through he explained mm -hmm. she saw him through i think she said he said like a ring type camera 
And she texts him, hey, don't come up here uninvited. So when I read that in the report, I say that's very much out of context. Um, and that was that's what wow. meant by that, right. And so I, I think that right there, that bit of information is something that I people we just weren't aware of. And I think right. that makes a big difference between what the perception is and what the reality is of what went down. And you have right. information that can kind of, you know, that can corroborate that. So now just for clarification, when you say the Instacart thing, explain that really quickly. You say Instacart. <laughs> well, my son, he decided to uh, drive an Instacart. Instacart is, uh, um, I think, a service the way I understand it. He didn't tell me about it. Um, uh, and I'm, I know the reasons why Daniel didn't tell me, because he know the first time I was like, what you doing with Instacart? But that was the first <laughs> time I heard that that night. Uh, why he would be, you know, doing Instacart. So um, what I, I learned from his sister is that um, Dane decided to do Instacart to make extra money. Instacart is a service where he go pick up people groceries and, uh, and, and deliver it to them. Uh, he did that because he works for Major's New World. And Major's New World do not provide um, their own vehicles. They don't divide, uh, divide, uh, provide his gas money to everything he do when he go to these well sites, no matter what city he go to here in Arizona. Uh, he had to provide all the expenses to the equipment to whatever case it takes to uh, perform that job. Uh, and what he had to do at the end of that job, he had to put in an expense report. And his company would sometimes take time to process that expense report and give him his money back. Before that happened, that can cause his bills to get behind. So that's what caused him to start utilizing Instacart to make sure his bills on time. Man, I thought geologists made tons of money. Yes. Think he'd be out there doing Instacart. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure Instacart. people are thinking like geologists, he's making a ton of money, but yes. okay. Yes. Just a little perspective <laughs> for, for, for me and I'm sure for other people who, who will be watching this. Um, yes. So as far as um, sightings and tips and things like that, as a parent, I'll say this. I know in doing this podcast, people get hoaxes. They get horrible phone calls from people. They get fake information and all that stuff. And as a parent, I'm, I'm assuming you're chasing all this stuff down. So so tell me what your experience has been with that and has any of it panned out to anything? You know, um, when Daniel first went missing, of course, um, you know, this, the story ended up going national. And when it, when that happened, of course, I have all kind of um, sightings, uh, whether it's in California, I even had one in Georgia, uh, one, um, most of them here in, um, in, in um, Arizona, Flagstaff, Sedona, um, you know, um, other areas here in, in, in Arizona, um, even in the homeless um, population. So yeah, we tracked all of those down, doing a lot of traveling, um, but they since kind of subsided. At this point, um, here it is almost 10 months later. Um, I, I don't really hear too many more, um, you know, hey, Mr. Robinson, I see someone like Daniel. None of them ever panned out. Um, in fact, uh, one only had a picture on one, one of those sites and somebody produced a picture um, that definitely wasn't Daniel. Uh, but the others, um, you know, once we go out there, they didn't, couldn't provide pictures. Uh, we couldn't find any evidence that would say, hey, you know, this, this was corroborated, that it was Daniel. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, it's very hard every time, every time. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure you get crazy messages and all types of stuff. Yeah, I, I get a crazy message from, um, even from the crazies. Uh, well, you know, one thing is um, I can't, can't really uh, decipher which thing is credible when people say, hey, I even had messages where, Someone tells me, say, hey, we have your son. We broke his legs. We got him, you know, up under some house and things like that. So I get um, crazy, even to the point of, of threatening me as a father uh, looking for my son. You know what I'm saying? So it's all kind of messages I get out there. Uh, even to this day, you know, you get some crazy things out there on the tip line. Um, and some things you got to kind of weave out. And, and that's the hardest part. You don't, it's hard to determine some things you weave out, which, which is credible. 
um, to follow after and which ones are not. Mm -hmm. Has Daniel's employer or former employer, have they had any part in the searches or help, helped you guys with any of the process of this? Well, yeah, well, you know, um, one thing was disappointing with the company, if, you know, like I told the owners, I did have a meeting with them. Um, he's, he's an employee, you know, he was on the job. Um, you know, before I even got here to Arizona, um, I expected them to would have been out there with a search party. Um, they had the resources, they had the funding uh, to go out there and, um, um, you know, do some searches for my son. They didn't do that. Uh, one thing when I started my own searches, though, they did come out to assist. Um, I don't know if it was a mandate from the company or it was a bunch of workers got together and said, hey, we want to come out to the father's searches. Uh, but they did come out to the searches to help me uh, man the gate uh, to direct people in. Uh, to perform some of the uh, uh, line searches that I was um, performing, the hasty searches and things like that. So they did at the beginning. Um, they have since fell off. Um, we do have one, uh, Daniel's uh, boss, uh, his, his supervisor, who would come out every so often. He don't come to every search, but he would come out as many searches as he can. Mm -hmm. Now, as, as far as uh, Daniel's connection to the company, I know some, some people were saying like, oh, they were you guys are family friends of yours or something like that. Can you clarify what the relationship is or if there is one? Well, you know, at the beginning, um, like I said, I, I reached out to everybody, Buckeye Police Department, his job. I tried to get information from everybody. And, you know, and with that um, came um, a relationship where um, the company was willing to give me, provide me all the information I need. They even donated uh, to the GoFundMe to kind of help. Um, so um, they, they was very helpful on that front, uh, giving me information. Uh, but later, as um, my investigation goes on, you know, I had to distance our relationship from family to work. Uh, Daniel himself, uh, from what I understand from that, uh, those meetings I have, um, had a great relationship with his, his job, uh, with the co-workers. Uh, one of the co-workers there was a very good friend of his. They often go hiking together and things like that. Um, one of the, the, the supervisor uh, tell me Daniel and his wife, Daniel sometimes eat breakfast with him and his wife on the weekends and they go hiking. So things like that. So they did have a, a working relationship between my son and his, his company. So they did have some type of formal relationship themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, let me let's switch gears a little bit um, and ask you, I mean, you've been through a lot. Your family has been through a lot. How are you doing mentally? How are you doing emotionally? You know, I know you're a military man, so you just kind of, you know, hold on to those things sometimes. But I'm just wondering, like, at this point, I mean, you, you, you've done a ton of interviews at this point. Um, but how are you? How are you really doing? Well, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, you know, I'm still driven, like I said, driven by my love for my son. Uh, first of all, I have God, you know that, and also I do have my military experience, but emotionally, yeah, it's rough. It's rough. Every day is the same thing. Every day I uh, wake up the next morning, it's the same thing. My son's still missing. And so it's like starting over and over again. I have to constantly think of new ways to uh, put his name out there, constantly think of ways to uh, techniques and things to search the desert better or get a flyer distribution out. I have, I have billboards uh, from the east side of Phoenix to um, out to Buckeye, Arizona on I-10. So I'm going to try to find every, everything I can, every avenue I can. So it's a lot of strain. Of course, a lot of strain. Um, you know, um, you get pulled different directions trying to do multiple things. I have a foundation coming up, the Daniel Robinson Foundation and things like that. So it's a lot of pressure, a lot of um, strains going on, um, just getting pulled in different directions. It's very hard, very tough. Yeah, I was going to say about as his mom, his siblings, just the right. extended family. I mean, how, how are they even coping as well? You know, and that's the thing, you know, I'm standing together for all of them. You know, they, they, they're asking me to uh, um, bring Daniel home. Uh, I'm out here doing that. I uh, talked to the family. They're suffering. You, you can imagine what the mother's going through. 
Um, you know, her, her youngest son is uh, missing. Um, his siblings um, out there um, don't know where their little brother at. Um, he have grandparents. He have two grandmothers that's suffering right now, devastated what's happening with their grandchild, cousins and uncles and aunties. So, uh, and, and friends. Uh, so they all doing, they doing the best they can uh, under the circumstances. Uh, they're hanging in there. Um, they're relying on me, like I said, to give them some of those answers and I'm looking for them. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Daniel. Tell me what, what he's like. What does he like to do? What is his personality like? Well, Daniel, he's, uh, first of all, he's the youngest of um, his siblings, um, older siblings. And um, he, he's uh, just from birth. You know, so everybody knows Daniel's born without a right hand. Uh, from his birth, he is the loudest crying baby I can remember. Uh, but he's a very crying, just let us know that he's very strong. He's a very strong young man. He, he only asked about his hand one time with his mom. I think he's roughly around five years old. Asked his mother where his hand is. His mother told him that God has it and he's going to return it to him one day. He never asked again. Uh, one thing was apparent about Danny, his personality. He's, he's a person that likes to challenge everything. He challenges himself. He challenges his siblings. Uh, he challenges them academically from playing video games. You just name it. That's what Danny does. When he challenges himself, again, you all know that he, um, he taught himself how to play the French horn. He played the trumpet. Um, you know, he, he tried to play a little bit of sports, a little bit of football. He lifted little weights. And, and then academically, he decided he wanted to be um, a, a geologist and he graduated with honors. So um, Daniel's that kind of guy when he want to challenge something, uh, he challenge thing, he go out there, he go get it. He's very friendly. Everybody in that, that school and college of Charleston uh, know him. Um, um, they call him WAP, but they know him. They see him in the street. He has multiple friends um, just everywhere. Um, and then, like I said, very much people person. He's driven towards nature. Uh, that's why he loves Arizona. He loves um, hiking, uh, adventurous type stuff. He's a very adventurous guy. He's also, like I say, he's a scientist, very brilliant mind, um, have his, his, his head very much leveled, um, had to exactly know exactly which direction to go. He planned it as he go and what he want to do. So he, that's the way Daniel is, his personality and who is, and he loves his family. Uh, one of the lads say he loves his family. He go way out the way, just even with this COVID, he go out of the way to make trips down to South Carolina to see his grandparents, stay in the yard um, so he wouldn't get them sick and just talk to them through the window so he can come back here to Arizona. So he do love his family and he like to spend time with them, with us. Are you, are you temporarily in Arizona? Or are you just going to stay longer? Like what's, what, and where did you move from? Just so I'm clear. Uh, I moved from Columbia, South Carolina is where I live. I do have a home in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, I have a one bedroom apartment here um, to be here until I find my son. Um, I haven't made a, a permanent decision to uh, out of sell a house or things like that. Uh, but I, I do live here also in uh, Phoenix. So you and you you were in the military, right? So you were just kind of like retired, I guess, at this point. And so your whole yes. life got flipped upside down when this happened. And, and that's that's exactly what happened. You know, one day I'm sitting there enjoying my retirement after all this hard work, um, enjoying my retirement, uh, sitting on the back um, at back area of the house, um, um, enjoying myself watching television. When I got that phone call, get that one phone call. Now I'm here in Arizona since that time, um, looking for my son. So that's exactly how life can just change on a dime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me ask you a question. Um, so we know about the Jeep and the condition of the Jeep. When you went to Daniel's apartment, I'm curious about what you what did you find there? Well, you know, it'd been a hard time for us to get into that apartment. Um, um, I, I wasn't able to get into that apartment until the Buckeye Police Department turned over all the belongings to me uh, from Daniel um, that contained Daniel house keys. Um, so um, to be able to get in an apartment is very, very, very hard. 
the hardest part was not the fact of getting in his apartment and seeing his things without him being there. Uh, the hardest part was when it came down, once the investigative, uh, my team, uh, my private investigator finished his job um, to pack the Daniel things up. When we decided to uh, stop paying the rent and, and, and pack everything up and put it in the storage. Um, that was the hardest part. We didn't know what to throw away, what to keep. You know, it's hard to know what Daniel wanted and what not, you know, that he didn't want. Um, to see some of his things that he prized, like he had a rock collection. I didn't know what the rock collection was about. He's a geologist. He loved rocks. So to see some of the things and kind of understand some things about him, you know, everybody, once you live on your own, you build your own private life and your private things. Uh, so to be able to, get, to see those things, uh, him being a grown man and start his own identity, it's very hard. Very hard to um, uh, decipher, like I said, what to keep, what to not to keep, and mm -hmm. things like that. So, uh, and then he's not here to tell us that. Was there anything anything weird or strange that you guys discovered in the apartment, or was it just pretty much seemed in the or as, as an ordinary setup? Well, one of the biggest things um, when Buckeye went in there, uh, we was trying to get in there. They didn't go in because they had a warrant. Um, he was able to talk. Uh, Detective Biffin was able to talk the landlords. And to let him do a walk in the place where the landlord said they was going to watch him. He couldn't touch anything, but he can take a picture. Uh, so he did go in. Uh, one of the things he showed me and the pictures, they didn't allow me as a family member in at the time. Uh, so uh, the pictures that I have seen, the only thing that bothered me is that, you know, as a parent, uh, I see his room looking kind of messy. He's oh, he's a little messy. But, you know, as a parent, like, hey, I didn't raise him that way. You know, that type deal. Uh, but but uh, anything I did didn't stand out until uh, my investigator went in there. And um, um, he looked at it in a different light. I look at it from a parent parent's view, um, thinking like, hey, you know, he need to keep his room a little cleaner. Um, but he looked at it in, as a possible somebody was in there looking for something. And, and one of the things were uh, because of the uh, vacuum cleaner, uh, Daniel had a vacuum cleaner plugged up as if he was in the middle of uh, vacuuming, but then he had all these things thrown on top of the vacuum cleaner itself that would indicate something was somebody was looking for something. So he had some little clues like that. So that was still questionable to this day. Uh, we, we're trying to look into those also. That sounds strange for sure. Yes. So as far as what's next for you, um, I read that you were going to a Buckeye City Council meeting. What, what is that about and why are you going? Well, you know, I've been here since uh, June the 26th. Um, I keep repeating that for a reason. Um, you know, um, I've been on the ground. I've been on the ground searching hard for my son. Uh, I've been working with the department. And then I was working outside of the department. I hired a private investigator. I have hundreds of uh, uh, volunteers on the ground out there in that desert um, finding human remains. Um, I brought in a lot of interviews from uh, the big networks coming in to uh, do interviews with the police department out on the ground, um, all the social media attention, all this kind of stuff going on. And not one time did the city managers, the manager, uh, or the uh, mayor, I meant to say the mayor, the city managers, or anybody alike um, will say, hey, Mr. Robinson, you're, you're here in Arizona. I'm sorry what happened to your son. We're going to do anything we can to try to help. Or just say, hey, Mr. Robinson, we hope you just go back home to South Carolina. They didn't acknowledge me at all. And so one of the biggest things is I went to the first uh, city council meeting, um, uh, the first one of this month, um, just to make a statement. I sat there in the front row um, just to make a statement saying I'm here. And this one that's coming up, I'm actually going to speak uh, because I want to say I'm here. Um, you know, one way or the other, I, I know that this department, you know I've been here since June 26th. They're, like I said, you're a mayor of a city. You're supposed to know what's happening in your city. And I'm sure they know that I have hundreds of volunteers out there uh, searching for my son. And they have not one time even sent me a letter or acknowledgement that I'm here on their ground.
You know, and, and actually, and, and listening to you, and I know you kind of mentioned it before, but as far as the media coverage, how do you feel about how it came about for you? Because I know you were getting some traction a little bit in the beginning, but then, you know, when Gabby Petito's case became more prominent, I guess it, it kind of led to your coverage. So what do you think, what, what do you make of that? You know, and it's sad to say that, you know, um, you know, I have been working hard. I mean, I lost many nights of sleep. And sometimes I didn't like to give myself credit, but just hindsight now I have team members say, hey, yes, Mr. Robinson, give yourself some credit. Um, I've been working really hard, um, day and night, texting, emailing, contacting people, traveling, uh, just to get a little exposure. It started with the local news. It started with uh, two reporters here, local reporters, who was able to get my son's story out there. I started going to little radio stations here, getting uh, this thing out there. And then it took a tweet. It took a tweet. I started doing things on social media really hard. Uh, reaching out to people, and it took a tweet from a young lady who uh, retweeted a tweet of mine, and it went viral. Um, that kind of gave some little traction, um, started hitting some of these celebrities, couldn't get them, started hitting their friends up. And for instance, like um, uh, one of the um, uh, people on, on uh, MSNBC, for instance, uh, Joy Reid, was able to hear Jane's story through one of the friends of hers uh, who alerted her to that from the hard work of uh, reaching out to these people. Um, then it took the, um, the Tito case uh, to highlight it, to bring it into another um, level. So um, it, it's very sad that, that you have to go through three months of hard work um, as a um, uh, father sitting out here, out here trying to get uh, some attention for his son's case, um, three months. And then um, um, it, it all given contributed, contributed to a tragedy that happened to another person's family. You know what I'm saying? And that, that's, that's very hard to even hear from me at that point when it was first brought to my attention, it was devastating to me to hear another family was going through the same thing that I was going through. But then afterwards, it's devastating to know that people um, try to pin those two things together. And it's, it's very hard, very hard to even take that. I know how that family feel, I know how I feel, but I, I couldn't ignore the fact that there's the disparities that happen with people of color more so than anything. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I wanna just kind of lead to another question too. Um, with, with that, I think the the illusion of or the the perception that black fathers aren't around, black fathers aren't there for their kids, but you are clearly that. You are clearly there for your son and and everyone else. You, you you know, can you speak on that? Because I think people need to get that perspective from you about what it's been like for you as a black father and like the the perception of black fathers in America. You know, for me, it would go back to my childhood, of course. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with a father. Um, I grew up with, in a single parent home, my mother uh, raised me and my sister. Um, and, you know, so my vision of a father, um, when I became a father, I didn't know how to be a father, of course, you know, so I didn't have any role model to teach me that. Uh, but one thing I did have was my love for my children and all the things that I would like for uh, a father to be uh, for me you know, saying um, when I was growing up. So it gave me a drive. It gave me a drive to uh, when I first had my, my first son, um, I felt proud. Um, I held, held him up um, like they did in, in the movie Roots. It may sound kind of crazy. Held him up and I gave him a promise. I will always be there in your life, um, always. That was a promise for him and, and anybody who came after him. And, and that's one of the things. Um, I, I would like to say that, you know, as a black father, I love my, my children just like any other father would love their children. Any other mother would love their children. And um, um, I, I can't see it no different. Um, rather you're male or female, your children are your children. And, um, you know, as a black father, yes. And I, I do get that um, there's a lot of uh, stereotypes out there 
uh, when it comes to black males um, not loving our children. Um, I, I can't see it, um, I guess, because I do love mine. I know you've learned a lot of lessons through this process. What would you say to other families, especially families of color who struggle to get coverage for their kids? Is there any main lesson that you've learned that you want to pass on to them? Well, one thing is I know just can't give up. One thing is just don't take uh, somebody's word for anything. Uh, I don't care if they're wearing a badge and a, uh, a blue suit, you know, uh, with a gun, uh, meaning law enforcement. Just don't take people's word for, hey, we're looking for your loved one. Uh, we're really trying hard or, um, or, or, your, or, or any kind of narrative that you don't know about your own child. You fight for your, your, your child. You fight for your loved one. Um, sometimes we don't get the coverage that we deserve uh, for our loved one. You create your own. I had to create my own YouTube channel uh, to put my, my narrative, my son's story out there the way I need it, you know, to, to get it out as far as I can. Make that channel grow. Do whatever you got to do. Start your own searches. You know, everything you may have to end up doing for yourself, uh, but at the end, it'll become worth it. So I say, whatever you do, do not give up on your loved one. And like I said, um, just don't take anybody's words for anything. What would you say to the people who've helped you through all of this, all the searches? I mean, that's out in the desert. You're yes. talking about the summer. You know, what would you say to everyone who's contributed to your GoFundMe page, to those who have helped you search for your son, your words for them? I love them. <laughs> I love every last one of them. And they, they tell you that all the time. I tell them all the time. And that's from the bottom of my heart. And when I say it, I love them. I, I really love them. You know, because anytime somebody can take empathy for another person's family, they don't know Daniel. They don't know me. But you know what? They put itself in my shoes. They say, hey, look, man, this man looking for his, his son. Um, it could easily happen to me. Um, I, I can only imagine what that father's going through. I can imagine what that mother's going through. I can imagine what his siblings are going through. Um, and when, it, when time people put themselves in that kind of place, we are a family. We are a big unit, and it takes a family to um, do what I'm doing. I cannot do this by myself. I cannot search a desert by myself. Um, I cannot um, get these flyers out here. I can't create banners. Um, all the stuff um, that's happening right now, I can't do all this by myself. It takes a team effort. It takes a people effort. And when, whenever people come together like this, that's what happens. Um, things do happen. I love each and every one of them. And I, I tell them I value them. I don't take it for granted. And I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for everything God allowed these people to do. And I'm very happy, happy right now. And if Daniel could hear, hear you right now, what would you say to him? He, he knows. Daniel, uh, he knows I, I love him. I love him. He knows how I am as a father. Um, you know, he's a go-getter. I'm a go-getter. And he knows that I love him and I'm going to do everything I can. I mean, no matter what, he knows I'm not giving up on him. I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on him. It's kind of hard to say it at the way like I'm talking to him right now. But yes, I, I definitely am not giving up on my son. Um, and he's, he's worth it. He's worth it. I love him. He's mine. He's a Robinson. And, you know, I'm not going to do, I'm do everything I can uh, to make sure I bring him back home. When it comes to my final thoughts about this case, the first thing that comes to mind is, did Daniel encounter an unexpected situation and people in the desert and that somehow led to his disappearance? And what about the well that David believes was intentionally filled with dirt and has something buried in it? As for the theory of Daniel leaving his family to become a monk, that doesn't seem likely considering his close relationship with his family. It would seem to me that with all the miles of searching so far that Daniel would have been 
found at some point. David also said that his son was in a normal state of mind the last time that he spoke to him. And when it comes to the story about Daniel stalking or being obsessed with a young woman he met during his part-time delivery job just before his disappearance, David is adamant and says he has proof that through his son's information, that was not the case. I'm also wondering about the condition of Daniel's apartment. It was neat in the front area, but when the family's investigator at the time looked at his bedroom, it appeared to be tossed, as if someone was in there searching for something, and if that was the case, what were they looking for? There are a ton of questions about this case that still need to be answered, but the bottom line is the family is still desperate to find their loved one, and they want to bring a close to the situation. If you have any information in this case, call Buckeye Police at 623-349-6411 or the Robinson Family Hotline at 844-602-0660. I'll continue to follow this case closely and let you know what happens next. If you have a case that you want me to check out, you can reach me on the Intrigued Full Effect Facebook page or via email at intriguedfulleffect at hotmail.com. Until next time, be safe and stay true. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Intrigued Full Effect, Curious Cases, Disappearances, and Other Stuff podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the host. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The host of this podcast assumes no liability or responsibility for any activities in connection with opinions shared in the podcast. The podcast and blog associated with it shall not be used in any legal capacity or as a basis for expert testimony. Any copyright material in the podcast is approved by the owner or as part of the public domain. Music by Pond5.